to Real World Radio Europe, a show bringing together what's going on in the over 30 national member groups of Friends of the Earth Europe. We are the European branch of the largest grassroots environmental and social justice network, Friends of the Earth International. We are Colin from Young Friends of the Earth Europe and Gemma from Friends of the Earth Europe. Some weeks ago, Young Friends of the Earth Europe had three very intensive days of training on how to engage with communities affected by environmental injustice. There, Linda Sullivan, a writer and human and nature's rights activist from Friends of the Earth in Northern Ireland, and Vincenza Tirefite, a research intern at Women's Earth and Climate Action Network and also an activist and ecofeminism activist from Young Friends of the Earth facilitated two amazing workshops and shared with us their own experiences in working with communities all around the world. And, of course, we could not miss the chance of having a quick talk with them for sharing with you all their astounding testimonies. Hello, everybody. We're here with Linda Sullivan. Linda, uh, would you like to introduce yourself and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Linda Sullivan uh, and I work with Friends of the Earth Northern Ireland. Uh, I work on the extractivism campaign Um, um, we are involved with communities that are defending their home against uh, mega mining and also illegal quarrying and there's um, sand, unlawful sand dredging in Loch Nave, um, our biggest lake. And um, yeah, so I work with communities that are involved in the resistance against these destructive projects. So, with, with such a long career working with affected communities on your back, uh, have you been able to identify some common struggles shared by all of them? Um, yeah, I suppose the common, um, the common vein running through uh, the different struggles uh, is um, the desire to protect their home from destruction. Uh, and the um, yeah, so the community wanting to well defend their home and also the earth. Like so, they start off with being worried about a project that is near their home, but then through that, the connection um, to other communities who are also um, struggling to protect their home, and then the expansion of the view that we're all in this together and we're all um, protecting the planet. So, and I think that's really interesting to see at home because we are traditionally a divided uh, society. Um, but the protection of, of place and protection of the earth is, is something that brings communities together and sees um, communities from both traditional sides and no side <laughs> uh, joining together 
in, in the struggle to, to protect the earth. And how would you describe your role in all these struggles? What do you do as an activist to properly support the community affected? Well, as, as an activist and also as a campaigner for Friends of the Earth, uh, I would and we would um, first of all listen to communities and understand the problem uh, and understand their uh, desires and needs uh, and then also explore with them what we could offer like what support we could offer. So whether that's um, training or providing resources uh, or whether that's creating the space for communities to come together and share and support each other or whether that's making connections with other organizations or with other communities internationally uh, and facilitating that global solidarity is what we have found that we can be useful in. But that all comes from uh, communities coming to us and yeah, opening the door for us as opposed to us going in and, and uh, knocking the door down. <laughs> so usually it is the community who asks first for your support. Have you ever done the first move and offer your health to our community that might not be aware that you even exist? And if you did it, how do you do it? And how did, did it go? So I suppose I can refer to my experience in Peru. So I was traveling in, in Latin America and visiting different communities that were affected by, by mining. And I heard of one community in the north uh, of the Peruvian highlands in a place called Cajamarca. And that w the communities were fighting off what would have been the biggest gold mine in Latin America um, and I heard that five people were killed in um, in a protest by the state like the state um, the state killed these these were protesters um, so then I wanted to go and visit and learn um, what was going on and understand the conflict and maybe offer um, my support Uh, so then I, I traveled up to Cajamarca and I just, well, I talked to people and found out uh, what were, they were thinking about the conflict and then I was introduced to the people who were organizing the, um, the campaign against the mine and I was invited to one of the meetings and the first time that I turned up at the meeting they asked me to introduce myself and just um, my intentions and what I was doing there so I just said that I wanted to understand and, and to offer support in any way I could so then we explored together in what way um, in what form that support could take and uh, we came to the conclusion that well my knowledge of English and my a natural inclination to um, to write and to be a storyteller uh, would work well um, with assisting them in, in raising uh, their voices internationally uh, and especially in North America where the company is from. So I took on the role then uh, of 
reporting in English what was going on um, and sharing their story. So then I, I kept a blog, I wrote articles that um, I looked to publish in, in different, organ different online publications and I helped on social media um, with, the, with the English pages. So I saw that as something, well, we saw that as something that uh, I could personally fill. I also got involved in, in other, like, you know, organizing of the, of the campaign uh, as someone who was living there. Then I lived there for four years, um, but it wasn't something I ever led on. I would uh, just contribute and, and support. Um, so yeah, I suppose I find I find my niche and I find a role that I could usefully um, undertake. Are you using also your storytelling skills with the communities now in Northern Ireland? Uh, well, Friends of the Earth uh, have have been very good at uh, at storytelling. So I go with the first, for example. There is a, a project called Nature's Keepers, and it would tell the story of um, certain, well, nature's keepers, people who uh, protect nature, and it would tell their story uh, and their connection to place through through video uh, and through um, very impressive visual, yeah, capture. So yeah, so so Friends of the Earth. Uh, Northern Ireland has been very good at that, and, and I, uh, I would try to follow that. So, yeah, like I would, I would write some articles or on social media, or um, yeah, try to try to also convey the story, but, um, but convey the story that the communities want to tell. Yeah. You were talking about. Uh, at the beginning about what brings people together. Did you manage to identify, if it's actually identifiable, what ingredients, what, what elements are needed for people to come together and to mobilize? Yeah, I suppose what, what maybe brings many people initially together is fear. Like um, like a threat uh, arises, and there's a f fear of this threat damaging their all that they hold dear, their their home, their land, uh, their communities. Uh, but I think what holds them together is love, like love for their community, uh, love for their land, and love for for their children, and love for the future. Uh, of their of their place uh, so yeah I think possibly that jolt at the start uh, is necessary the perception of a threat of, of what you hold dear but then the sustaining of a campaign needs to be held by something positive And, and that would be, um, as I have seen, just love of love of place and love of your community. How, how is the situation for affected communities right now in Northern Ireland? So 
in Northern Ireland. Uh, we haven't had a, a government for two years and we see a complete political vacuum. But we, instead of living in apathy or in despair, the communities that we work with are taking back their power and working for uh, reclaiming the rights of communities to decide their own future. Uh, so, and in that decision-making process, uh, they, and in this local lawmaking process uh, of enshrining um, the rights of communities in local law, they are also looking to enshrine the rights of nature in local law. Uh, so instead of viewing nature as a resource to be exploited, uh, they view it as part of who they are and something that needs to be protected at the highest level, uh, so given the same protections as, as humans. So the rights of communities and the rights of nature is a big campaign that's uh, gaining momentum uh, and we see it as essential in uh, the protection of of our planet and future generations. Is it this movement getting really popular? So uh, it's been happening in a, in a number of places around the world, but one particular organization that is pioneering the approach is um, an organization called um, the Community Environmental and Legal Defense Fund based in the States. Uh, and they, have been working with us uh, and sharing their experiences of how it is working in the States and how a number of communities uh, have been uh, advancing this rights of communities and rights of nature approach. And there is, so just recently, a place uh, called Lake um, Erie passed its first Bill of Rights. So this ecosystem has uh, has rights as an entity uh, and they they were also working in New Zealand um, with uh, communities and so there's a river in New Zealand who has uh, has rights and also Ecuador they recommend the Ecuadorian government and the rights of nature is enshrined in the Ecuadorian government so these uh, this is happening in in different parts of the world and we believe it can happen in in Northern Ireland as well are you very positive about it? Have you any projects, proposals about this going on? Well, I think, as opposed to thinking that, like, you know, we're positive about it, um, is we're looking at it as in, like, it's almost the only option. You know, like, so the other option is to be content with having no uh, real democracy and for our environment and our communities to continue to be exploited. So we don't want to accept that. <laughs> so the, this taking back of taking back the power uh, and creating real democracy and using that real democracy to protect our home is the only viable way forward. So yeah, that we have like a number of our communities are, are really enthusiastic about this idea, and we're still exploring how it would actually uh, work uh, in our legal context. Uh, but there will be a way 
um, and we hope that this uh, way forward will um, only gain momentum. So, so legally, who could actually defend the, the rights of nature according to these laws? Uh, yeah, so in different places it takes different forms. So in New Zealand uh, there were a number of guardians that were selected, like one person from uh, the Maori community and another person um, from possibly in uh, the NGO sector. Uh, but in other places, in Ecuador, like anyone, like any citizen can um, go into court and represent nature and you know claim that nature's rights aren't being protected so we would need to look and see what is the most appropriate and um, um, the best way to protect the rights of nature uh, but that that can be explored with yeah with the communities that we're working with to end this interview um, what could you say from your experience uh, are the main obstacles when working with affected communities. What advices could you give? Uh, I suppose maybe not clinging tightly to our own agendas or being aware that we have our own agendas and and then being open to those being challenged and open to the possibility that we may be mistaken <laughs> or going in the wrong direction or believing that we should go in the wrong direction so it's been a big learning for me throughout my time as an activist that I'm open to giving up uh, previously held ideas of how I believe things should go um, so I suppose it's like taking, taking your ego out of it uh, and Yeah, uh, an activist that we work with um, does work on uh, connecting people to their higher intention. So always uh, in our yeah, like in our work as as activists and campaigners, to always go back to our higher intention. Like, yeah. So what do we really want? You know, because we can get quite narrow in our objectives and and maybe then lose sight of the of the real goal. So always bringing that back is, is important and maybe like, yeah, stepping back and, and assessing like how, how we are interacting and what we really, um, yeah, what we really want to achieve. Not mistaking the, the means or the aims, is it mm. what, yeah. yeah? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, not getting too, uh, yeah, I suppose in a way not not compromising on our values either, especially like if I see that happening a lot with uh, NGOs that would try to work with the companies uh, through like their maybe social corporate responsibility and um, because they believe that they can be changed from the inside, but then um, at times that leads to the compromising of, of values. So I think it's like being aware of that as well um, and constantly reassessing and being open to criticism. 
Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for all that. Mm-hmm. Thank, you. thank you very much, Linda. Yeah, thank, thank you. you very much. Yeah, that's good. So now we're talking to Vincenza Cirefice. Vincenza, could you introduce yourself and what is your work? Yeah, so my name is Vincenza and I'm from the north of Ireland. Um, I guess I grew up in a very rural area um, on a farm. And apart from, I guess, going to university, I've lived in rural areas since that. I've been involved in community organising in rural communities in Cyprus and Ireland. Um, and I've also lived in rural communities in Scotland and Italy. Um, and I also do a lot of work around ecofeminism um, with different networks in Ireland and other places as well. And I'm yeah really interested in bringing gender lenses to the work I do. Well, okay, that's uh, well, that's a good overview. Um, maybe you would like to talk a bit more about your involvement with communities and give us some examples of common struggles for those communities. Sure, yeah. You see a lot of um, similarities in different countries because I guess um, affected communities are all facing the same globalized structure. So the symptoms of that are very similar no matter what context you're in. Um, so. I've been involved in Cyprus, for example, um, living in a village uh, last year and working with um, a very small local NGO um, around um, environmental awareness and non-formal environmental education in schools and things like that. But one of the projects that we were really involved in was um, supporting another village close to us um, in their struggle against a gold mine, which was trying to be opened there. Um, and uh, that would have brought a huge amount of environmental destruction to that area but also it would have mean, meant the losing of really important heritage um, sites and um, in Cyprus um, that kind of um, archaeology and heritage is really tied in with people's identity so it was really about people losing markers of their identity as well um, if the the mine went ahead um, and I guess yeah I'm seeing a lot of parallels to that now that I'm back home in in Northern Ireland where um, Dalriad and a Canadian company is trying to open one of the biggest um, mines in Europe in the Sparrow Mountains in County Tyrone and it's also a gold mine that would use cyanide to process the materials and again there's like really strong community opposition to that so there's a lot of parallels between those two communities specifically yeah and I guess it kind of ties in with the whole concept of um, rural communities as sacrifice zones um, that the people who live there don't really matter and the the environments there are actually just you know dead resources to be exploited um, so yeah it's really exciting to be um Yeah, engaged with and working with the communities who have a completely different worldview. You know, they see the the landscape as part of their culture and their identity, and um, the environment is totally vital for their health and um, the vitality of their communities. And they're really, yeah, um, creating a different vision, really, of what they want the world to look like in opposing these 
companies which have a very extractive mindset where um, these areas don't really matter. You talked about communities creating a vision and I'm wondering how, how is the process and what is actually bringing people together for that? Yeah, um, I was really inspired when I was in Cyprus because um, the local initiative against the gold mine there um, involved in that is um, a young woman who is an archaeologist and she's super passionate about um, her country's history and the local landscape and the meaning it has for local people and everything. So um, they've been working really hard to kind of like spread that awareness in the local community and they've done loads of different events sort of celebrating what's already there. And it's really nice to see because it's not just that they're opposing something and they're fighting something, they're also celebrating um, what they have and bringing local people's attention to that. And I, yeah, I saw even in the small time that I was there, a huge amount of um, locals getting more engaged in their local area, going for little trips out to specific like um, old mills or um, different like sacred sites and things like that, um, and learning a lot about yeah different species in the area and um, the geology of the area and yeah really taking on a new appreciation of where they live as well. So that was really inspiring. Yeah. Um, and do you think this kind of movement uh, is establishing stronger links between people? Definitely, yeah. yeah. And um, it's really nice because they're building a lot of um, strong links between lots of different groups in Cyprus because there's a lot of other affected communities in Cyprus as well. Um, it might not be mining, it might be the privatization of coastlines and the, the building of um, tourist resorts on protected areas and things like this, or golf courses in protected areas. Um, so there's a lot of strong solidarity links. And I think that's something that's really important um, when we're talking about rural affected communities because the struggles are so localized and they're like in one place, it can also it can sort of feel a bit isolating sometimes um, uh, you might feel like uh, you know it's the small problem in this kind of cut off area but actually there's enormous amounts um, of um, potential in drawing on the links between different affected communities and the support they can show for each other and how they can learn from the tactics that companies use in one place and another because you'll see that they're the same pretty much wherever you go and uh, for example the company in Cyprus promised a new football pitch and they give bribes to local politicians they do exactly the same thing in Northern Ireland um, so yeah it's really great if we can like as activists help strengthen those solidarity networks um, as allies and um, yeah because they're really really helpful in the struggle and what is your role in all these struggles what do you exactly do with the community and how do you get involved with them I guess because I was actually living in the community, it was a lot easier and I had already like developed relationships with the people involved. So it was kind of easier for me to sort of get involved as opposed to coming in as an outsider. But um, the people that I've met in these struggles are really open to 
anybody who wants to support them in whatever way they can um, come for visits you know um, spread the news through their own networks and their own environmental networks like for example um, we wrote articles and did videos about the Mathiatis mine in Cyprus on Young Friends of the Earth and that exposed it to a whole new audience which was really great um, so I guess it's just using the the resources you have available to you to amplify the voices of local communities and rural communities. Uh, what could you say from from your experience? What what could be the main obstacles when working with affected communities? Yeah, I mean, um, just kind of the lack of um, capacity, I guess. If people are doing this in their like spare time, they have jobs and a lot of other commitments and things. So. Um, yeah it's it's not really um very easy for them to you know they're devoting so much time and energy to this and it can really cause a lot of burnout and stuff so yeah that's why i guess um ngos and different environmental groups kind of showing solidarity is really important um i guess um on more like a personal level of the barriers of me being involved when i was there um where I guess the ethical kind of questions I had about as an outsider, how much I should be involved or um, what my role should be. Um, also, there's like language barriers there. Like if I'm in a meeting and I don't want to force everyone to speak English just because I'm there and <laughs> um, make people uncomfortable. Um, yeah, there's lots of different, different barriers. And um, now I'm actually back in Northern Ireland and I'm, Uh, organizing with the local rural community around divestment of fossil fuels and there's sort of new um, sort of struggles to overcome like for example a lot of people don't have access to the internet um, or they don't really use technology so I'm kind of having to reassess organizing tools and things like that because if you're used to working with young people they're all really good at using social media and emails and all these things but um whenever you're working with a community that might not even check their email like <laughs> um like in a month or something you have to sort of yeah <laughs> rethink strategies and things like that and did you come up with some with some strategies already or is it like still a yeah I, I guess like the whole like face-to-face thing like and personal contact has just been really important and I guess I'm lucky that we're all quite close together the people so we try to like meet up as much as possible and even just have like a cup of tea together stuff is really powerful not even just to have strategy meetings all the time um, and Yeah, link up with other environmental campaigns in the area as well, because there's a couple of really good groups who are working on important issues as well. So we can sort of support each other that way, which is really nice. And um, yeah, I guess it's about building the relationships and just um, spending time to talk with people and listen with them and learn from them as well. I think we both would like to hear more about your work with ecofeminism and especially how do you use ecofeminism when working with these affected communities could you talk us about that a bit yeah so i guess i um studied a lot of ecofeminist um perspectives in my masters 
course and then um, I went on to do some work with Plan International um, around menstruation as a kind of eco-feminist uh, feminist issue um, and then sort of like jumping into community organising kind of is a little bit different from that but um, it still applies to the whole mindset of ecofeminism. you know it's um, a way I guess of looking at the world and um, you can almost do anything from that perspective you know um, so I guess with this perspective I'm just like hyper aware of gender relationships um, in communities and the sort of the, the gendered impacts of extractivism as well um, globally, not just in the countries in Europe where I've worked. Um, and also, um, whenever we're like talking about organizing and um, kind of resisting these uh, big developments, um, looking at how um, gender plays out in those situations and um, how you can sort of... Um, yeah, have a sort of critical lens towards gender roles um, and how work is distributed inside struggles um, to sort of, yeah, make sure that you're not just fighting one oppression but then replicating another oppression in your methods. So, yeah, um, but I love ecofeminism and, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm always trying to um, incorporate into the to the things that I'm doing. Do you have any technique, strategy that you use when working with affected communities to make sure that there is this philosophy of ecofeminism it's been applied and that everybody have an equal role and mm, um, I guess I'm still trying to figure this all out, you know, I, I don't have all the answers myself, but um, I think that just being like really aware of group dynamics is like where it all starts. Um, and it's something that we talk a lot about in Young Fo as well, which I think is great. And um, these kind of gatherings are great because it like teaches you a lot of new techniques and things. Um, but, you know, just creating a space and a group where you try to minimize those power hierarchies that exist in society as much as possible so that um, everyone regardless of their gender feels welcome to speak in meetings as a first step even you know and then that can kind of lead to a questioning of how society works outside of those spaces then um, like you often see in meetings where it's mainly just men talking at the start or whatever so it's just as a facilitator maybe trying to encourage everyone to input um, or yeah create a safe space for that to, to happen I think that's quite an eco-feminist thing to do <laughs> yeah <laughs> well to, to finish with this great interview could you tell us some advices you could give to all, all the activists working with affected communities yeah, maybe I can say a little bit um, of what we were talking about yesterday in the we did training on rural communities, which was really great, and I got to hear experiences of the participants from all around Europe, which was really nice, and it just sort of like reminds me that every context is really different, and um, every uh, 
country you're working in or even smaller sub-region is totally different. You can't really generalise about what rural communities are like and um, also the fact that they're not just one thing as well. There's lots of differences inside these communities, so that's something to be really aware of whenever you're thinking about engaging with people is that it's not just... um, like one group of people with all the same values and views and opinions um, it's actually um, you have to go with an intersectional lens and think about class or gender age even is a big one as well in rural areas yeah (laughs) that's everything but um, yeah I'd say yeah just the the building of relationships is the most important thing and you know taking time to get to know people and to drink plenty of tea or coffee with them (laughs) definitely to develop trust and um, that's the best way to learn uh, what's important to the community and um, and the best way for you to show solidarity as well because you might go with an idea that the best way to show solidarity is by doing this and this but maybe that's not what the community need or want so it's really important to drop all of your assumptions from the start and just go there with fresh eyes and be curious and listen and realise that people uh, who live in these areas um, they might not be seen as the like technical experts on environmental issues but they're the experts of these environments and they're the experts of their experiences and often they have so much um, ecological knowledge that might be um, stored up in uh, local myths and legends or stories or um, different different ways of knowing the world. So yeah, there's loads of different ways of knowing the world and I think we need to privilege um, these discourses as well. Perfect. Wow. <laughs> Thank okay. you so much for... You're welcome. Thank you very much. I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, a lot of sense. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Uh, and to keep up to date with our network campaigns, you can follow Friends of the Earth Europe and Young Friends of the Earth Europe on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and visit our website foeeurope.org. You can also get involved with the Friends of the Earth group or Young Friends of the Earth group near you by going to foeeurope.org slash network You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or whatever you download podcast. You can also follow radio stories from around the Friends of Years International Network at radiomundoreal.fm Thanks to Peter Times for the music and... See you next time. This was Friends of the Earth Europe and Rio Radio. Radio.